Those who know me know that I love to spend time on the beach. I love to go there with my family very often. And one of the things that I love to do, which you might think is quite simple or maybe even child's play, is that I love to gather flat rocks and build up these stone towers. And they look kind of shaky and kind of precarious. But I just find it a really peaceful and relaxing exercise. So I've had that in mind as I've been preparing for today's message. So I want you to remember that kind of shaky or kind of... Uh, unsure foundations because we're going to land today in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and it's a part of the letter that Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he speaks specifically about foundations. No matter how carefully I might place those flat stones and how large the stones might be themselves it never really looks that steady and while that might be true of something physical I believe that it might highlight something with regards to spiritual matters as well. Foundations that are faithful leading to fruitfulness, and foundations that are faithless, leading to futile results. That's a theme that I've discovered as I've been looking through 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul is writing this letter back to a church that he'd helped to plant and pastor some years prior in the Greek city of Corinth. And we've been finding out over recent weeks, his heart is that their community might be well established in that city, but also distinguishable from the city around them too. They've been saved by Jesus Christ, And now they've been called to be set apart with different perspectives, priorities, patterns of behaviour. Now the city is full of various ideologies and idolatries. And here we find a church that has been called to radical obedience in one God. But also we find the grace of the God who is committed to establishing things well. In Corinthians chapter 3, we find this in three key ways. Firstly, His grace in the discipling, verses 1 through to 9. Paul provides some truth and metaphor to teach his brothers and sisters in the faith that life with Jesus creates sure foundations, one that is not shaky and easily deconstructed like my stone towers on the beach. Are they to be a church that filled with faith, that is effectively established and proven, or one that is overwhelmingly governed by the preferences and the practices of the culture that surrounds them. Paul refers to the second practice of faith as being, we see in verse 3, as worldly. The word worldly might commonly refer to someone with great exposure to all the, the, the life experiences, all the stuff of life that's on offer. Someone who's faced up against all kinds of events and conditions and is now hardened up, living to tell a tale or two. But in biblical terms, worldly refers to someone who is continually willing to give themselves to desires and temptations without any conviction or change. Someone preoccupied with physical and material, temporary things around them rather than the kingdom of God. Paul says, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? He's like, guys, come on, you've received a greater revelation of life, yet you're still stuck in pointless disagreements, resulting in such limited signs of any kind of transformation. He likens their spiritual growth to someone who should have been weaned long ago onto proper food, but is still suckling at a bottle. There's time where nourishment that is simple is appropriate. But then there's time when our spiritual appetite, our conduct, our patterns of belief need to progress. 
as we grow physically, we have a change of appetite, right? Well, so too is the things with God. Hebrews chapter 6 commands us that we move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward in maturity. A sign of maturity in Christ is that your diet changes. The stuff that you feed yourself, your inclinations, your habits, your reactions, your satisfaction with Christ himself begins to progress. We never leave behind the basic truths about Christianity, but we're invited to embrace a discipleship to Jesus that enables greater depths, spiritual solids. Paul's affections for the church are really clear. We saw that when we were looking at chapter one a few weeks ago. And it's from that place of love that he's permitted to identify that they are infants in their conduct. Not to suggest that he's better than them in any way, he's not saying that, but as an encouragement to become aware of how behaviour such as quarrelling or jealousy is having a detrimental effect on how they represent Christ in Corinth. God wants to take them, take them and us from places of spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. Not always at the same pace, not always in exactly the same ways, but that is the pathway that he sets us upon. Now, some circumstances in life might humble us. We might feel like we're being taken back to, to primary school or even back to the high chair, in, fa- in fact. But the work of sanctification is one of spiritual development as we grow in our understanding of Christ and his kingdom and what a life of holiness can and might look like. When our lives are hidden in Christ Jesus, we are not better people. That would be a foolish way of thinking. That would be an unbiblical way of thinking. But we do find ourselves with a deeper foundation than the world offers. When we lack confidence in or commitment to that foundation, a sign of that is that certain behaviour patterns become exposed. In this instance, it's jealousy and quarrelling. Now, in the church in Corinth, an immaturity in faith is being exposed by arguments about who their favourite preachers and pastors are. I like Paul, no, I like Apollos, no, I, I, I prefer the teachings of Peter. And then division of fallout starts to happen. Really? It seems like such a trivial matter to be so easily sidetracked by. Now, jealousy and quarrelling are just two markers that Paul highlights as evidence of their insecurity or their, their immaturity. Now, I wonder what it might be for you. I know that when I lack certainty in what Christ Jesus has established in my life, I can become incredibly impatient and that shows itself outwardly. I can also become very anxious and restless, which is hidden away and it's something that I recognise as an inward thing. I can also feel that way when I believe that my life is being held upon my shoulders and I'm bearing all the responsibility of it. Paul moves on to a different metaphor as we continue into chapter 3. He says from verse 5, What after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. Friends, you know that when we seek to grow in our relationship with Jesus and indeed serve together and work together to help other people to do the same and mature in their growth, we go with the flow of God's deepest work. But we are just one spoke in the wheel. We are just one piece on the jigsaw puzzle. All of our actions, our motivations, our contributions are mere subheadings, footnotes in fact, to what God himself is doing. 
And I don't see that, say that to discard or diminish a life of service to God. But I say that to remind me and you that it's not about me and you. It never has been. It never will be. Paul says in, in verse 10, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is now building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. His church. We're serving him. It's only ever been about him. He who began a good work in us is the one that's going to see it through to completion. God is about a glorious work in the church. He's still doing it today. In my life, in your life. One that he is entirely committed to. One that he is the chief architect of. Now that stands in direct conflict with the individualistic and self-help culture that I'm surrounded by in the city that I live in. The world around me that is striving tirelessly to get ahead, restlessly trying to keep control of things or find comfort in anything possible. One that seems like it's just on an endless hamster wheel. And yet, through his life, his death and his resurrection, Christ Jesus saves us from ourselves. And has made a new way. And through his Holy Spirit, living in our hearts, the hearts of the church, that sometimes uncomfortable, always beautiful, ongoing work of sanctification takes place. We grow at different speeds, through different seasons, with sometimes unusual but always surprising developments. But he is the God who grows well that which he plants. So church, please don't doubt, please don't downplay the words of truth or affirmation that you might feel prompted to speak over somebody, the way that it, you might feel prompted to serve and love somebody else. That act of kindness, that display of hospitality or integrity or generosity, whatever it might be, you name it, when it's done in the name of Jesus and for his glory, God will grow it. It will not return to him empty. It will, it will accomplish that which he desires it to. It will achieve the purposes for which he sent it out. We read that in Isaiah chapter 55. However, that moves me on to, or moves us on to the second key point. His grace on the day. So we've seen his grace through discipling, but we see the grace on the day. Verses kind of 10 through to 15 in chapter 3. When we give ourselves, or of ourselves, within pure uh, motives, pride or dishonour or greed or those kind of things, there comes a moment when that will be exposed. Check from verse 11, and this should be quite sobering for all of us. He says, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. We read that. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though as one escaping through the flames. Now, we need to remember when we're reading verses like that, Paul is writing specifically to people in the church who follow Jesus, who have given their lives to Jesus. But we cannot go through 1 Corinthians and not stumble into Paul's reference to a moment of culmination of judgment 
In chapter three here, we've just seen him read it, or uh, quote it as being the day. It's kind of a nickname that he's given to it. Now, scripture repeatedly affirms the fact that there will be a final judgment that takes place of both the faithful and the faithless, where we will all stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and receive his conclusion of the life we've been given responsibility for. Jesus is referring to himself when he says in Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who were blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. So for those who are hidden in Christ Jesus, we have accepted his gracious offer of redemption through the finished work of the cross and the resurrection. Sin has been atoned for. There's now no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ Jesus. That sin-sized problem that every single one of us is faced with, every thought, every word, every action that doesn't measure up to the holiness of God is being weighed and will be held accountable for on the day. It's the righteousness of Christ alone that has entirely exonerated we can stand there and there will be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. By God's grace, we have one God-sized solution. His name is Jesus. But Paul asserts here that there is a reward for faithful works done to the glory of Jesus. Not as a means of salvation. We don't earn that, that, that place at all. Not as, as a result of salvation. Not to cause God to love us any more. He doesn't love us any more than he already does. But as recipients of his love, we get Move forward into works that bring glory to Jesus. And Jesus himself is going to give a valuation on how we've stewarded the opportunities he's given us in life. That's huge. In case that needs to just land in your heart for a second, that's a huge, huge statement. Our sins are judged in Christ, but it seems so too is our service. So notice how Paul refers to a, a variety of different materials when he's speaking about how a life of God's kingdom and how um, we invest our lives back into Jesus might look like. There's gold, there's silver, there's costly stones, but then there's wood, there's hay and there's straw. Now the first three things, when they pass through fire, they're purified, they're refined, their, their worth is proven. In fact, it's improved through that process. But the other three, wood, hay, straw, those substances don't hold up well against fire, right? They are destroyed. One is enhanced, but then the others are actually destroyed. Now, simply trying to be a good person, simply trying to uh, keep up with appearances, not picking up traffic fines or prison times, that is not the measure of what life is weighed by. Friends, we are all welcome to receive the unmerited forgiveness of Jesus. Even listening to this today provides you and me with an opportunity to consider what our relationship with Jesus is like and whether we're forgiven by him. And he accepts all of us and he welcomes every single one of us, regardless of the state of our hearts or our histories. The highest authority over your life is not your manager. It's not that vocal family member. It's not the biggest guy in the playground. It's not that neighbour who just is in your ear the whole time. 
there will come a day when the stuff of our lives is presented by presented before and considered by God himself Jesus Christ and it will be a great moment for some and it will be a terrible moment for others that moment is not for the purpose of letting God find out what's been going on as if he's some sort of teacher marking a homework assignment he knows everything about the stuff of our lives already he knows the inner workings and the detail this moment is for the purpose of displaying his full glory over all of humanity, magnifying his holiness and his supremacy, his love and his justice. Even in our judgment, it's all about him. And while there's still breath in our lungs, there is still time to become alerted to that reality. What good is it for somebody to seemingly gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul in that moment? The choices of who or what we put our faith in and who or what we live for do matter. And therefore the way we then love and serve and invest our time, our treasures, our talents into God's kingdom is either rewarded or rejected by God himself. God himself entrusts the church with people's hearts and stories. And how we all handle those opportunities matter. Regardless of how great or seemingly insignificant they might seem. Who are you serving with your life? Who are you serving with your life? Personally, I need to be reminded of this. I feel so exposed bringing this message on a very public platform. I really do. I'm so aware that there'll be many people listening to this, considering what I'm saying and thinking that it's absolute foolishness. But in, Paul, uh, in verse 18, Paul says, do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you might become wise. Like you, I'm going to one day stand before Jesus Christ, the King of all ages, and give an account for my life. And believe me, I care a lot more about that moment than I do about this one. I care a lot more about what he thinks about me than what the, the, the critics or voices that might be judgmental or disagreeing with what I have to say might think about me right now. I want to hear the words from Jesus that he's quoted as saying in Matthew 25, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. What summarising statement do you want to hear him proclaim over your story? And so what is the response? What, what must be our reaction? Well, it brings me to the third and final key point that I've picked out from Chapter 3, his grace through the dwelling. We've had the, his grace through this discipling, his grace through that day, and now his grace through the dwelling, verses 16 through to 23. Once more, we see the solution offered by God in these verses is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, to be honest, I can be tempted to want more than that. I've heard that invitation a thousand times. I want something a bit more snazzy, a bit more fresh, a bit more new perhaps. But the truth is, a life of spiritual substance with a firm foundation comes through the Spirit of Jesus residing in our hearts. That's it. That daily, that moment by moment decision we make to welcome him in. We need the ongoing presence of the Holy Spirit to accept and enjoy salvation. We need the ongoing filling of our hearts to appreciate his great grace over our lives and to understand the opportunities and the relationships that he places before us that we might do good works on. 
We need the Holy Spirit in order to effectively be in community with one another as co-workers in God's service. He uses that phrase in verse 9. And a church without the Holy Spirit is ultimately ineffective. Verse 16, he says, don't you know that you yourselves, it's the plural, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred. And you together, another plural, are that temple. Even me? Last summer, a friend and I went to Istanbul on holiday. We visited various uh, temples and ancient sites of worship. And every time we passed through the doorways of another one, the, the scale, the honour, the, the reverence, it was all so apparent. People's attitudes seemed to change as we passed into those spaces. And we read through in the Old Testament time and time again, these huge implications for anyone who might malign or mishandle God's ark, God's tabernacle god's temple there are implications that come upon them quickly well now through christ jesus the very presence of god has chosen to reside in my heart and in your heart very ordinary men and women his church church imagine that your heart is the holy dwelling place where the spirit of god chooses to inhabit can you believe it the Spirit doesn't look for buildings to dwell in that need to be maintained so that they look impressive. He dwells in people who need to be restored and then released on mission over and over again. How incredible that my heart and your heart are places that God himself wants to purify, to make sacred, to shine forth from, to reveal the things of his kingdom through. That potential changes everything. Communities that surround are meant to look at the local church and say, wow, you're, you're somehow different. You have different priorities. You have different responses. You're peaceful. You're gentle. You're kind. You're generous. What, why on earth is that? It's because the Spirit of God is living in our hearts. Paul starts chapter 3 by discipling the church to see with some clarity and hopefully conviction where they might be getting stuck, where immature theology and worldly values are hindering them from a life of spiritual growth. But he ends the chapter by giving them a vision of how God sees them, of how God has positioned them, of what God has in store for them. As his kingdom has come and his will is being done in the Corinthian church as it is in heaven. It says, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ's is God, God's. Let me say that again. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Not as a fleeting thing, not as a casual thing. Friends, there is a calling over our lives to be deeply rooted and established in the faithfulness and the power of God himself. Such that fruit is revealed here and by his grace, eternal rewards await there. I'm going to say a short prayer now. There's so much more I'd love to say over this, but I'm going to pause it now because I want you to take some time just to in consider for, for yourself some of the verses, to take time out just to welcome God into your heart yourself. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to move out your way. Lord, within the turmoil of our 
frantic world your spirit is working. Your grace and love is appearing in our day. You are always available to offer the transformation and it's one that is always needed. God, as we walk today, as we have tasks in front of us, as we're aware of those people who are around us, who you give for us to, to take opportunity within and, and to show your love to, keep us within your promises. Keep us within your purposes. Help us to see your hand at work. God, help us to live with increasing assurance that you are in control, that you are working all things for our good and all things ultimately for your glory. God, I welcome you into my heart again. Jesus, I am all yours. Come and do what you want with my life. It is an offering to you. Amen. God bless you.